This week, Eddie Jordan on why he wouldn't sign Sebastian Vettel, why he'd love to manage Carlos Sainz, and why Silverstone is in his soul. And now, from Tom's luxurious study and my tatty old kitchen table, this is F1 Nation. And we are delighted to have you with us once again. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Tom Clarkson. And I'm Alex Jakes. And the great thing, AJ, it's race week once again. It is always race week. It (laughs) It is is forever race week in 2020. (laughs) We've got confirmation of more races. That came out on Friday, which is really exciting. Three more. The total is now 13 for 2020 and counting. Two returnees and one new venue for Formula One announced this week. Really interesting. Where I want to start, though, TC, is I saw a lot of negativity about the Nürburgring track. Now, I joined Formula One in 2015, so I've not been to the Nürburgring. Is there something that you would enjoy about the circuit watching it on TV that is, is there something secretly terrible at that part of Germany? What's the deal with the (laughs) Nürburgring? To my money, Tom, uh, the races held there have been, more often than not, absolutely box office. They have been good. I think the Nürburgring's biggest problem, AJ, is that it's not the Nordschleife. That yeah. is, that it'll never quite recover from that. The modern track, which was first raced on by Formula One, I think in 1984. Yeah, it's got a lot going for it, particularly the second half of the lap. It's really fast. And um, I think some of the negativity as well might be something to do with the weather because we're going to be racing there uh, in October. <laughs> and you're in the middle. Imagine, AJ. I mean, it makes the uh, Red Bull ring, the location of the Red Bull ring, uh, look positively urban because you're actually <laughs> in the middle of the Eiffel Mountains. It's very green and it's high. And I, I mean, there really could be snow. There really could be snow. I've, I've even seen a, a quote from Sebastian Vettel saying he's already really excited about what the weather's going to be doing at the Nürburgring when we go there. So that might be part of the negativity. But in terms of track layout and the uh, the likelihood of a decent race, you're absolutely bang on. It, it's going to be a cracker. I mean, you sound to me like a man who's who's got a few races up your sleeve that you might want to talk about. It will surprise most listeners of this podcast that we put any prep in at all. But in the 10 minutes before we started recording this, off the top of my head, I was like, OK, let's think of some great races from the Nürburgring. So 1995, Schumacher around the outside of a Lacey, one of his greatest ever wins in Formula One. 97, you've got the Schumacher brothers colliding at turn one. Uh, Mika Hakkinen breaking down, looking set for a first victory. 98, one of Mika's best ever drives, uh, beating Schumacher just, just out of the pits both times. Um, I'm not going to bang on about the European Grand Prix in 1999 because I've already filled plenty of airtime banging on about my favourite ever race, won by Johnny Herbert, absolute lottery, fantastic. Schumacher in the wet in 2000. And I could go on and on and on. (laughs) And I could go on and on and on. But one of my favourite things about 2003 is, and I might have, and this might have to go out of the edit because I might have misremembered it. But I seem to remember Schumacher spun and Marshall's got him going again. And I'm sure one of the people on the track was not a Marshall. I'm sure there was someone in a T-shirt and shorts pushing Michael Schumacher back into the race. (laughs) Such was the love of that man at that circuit. 
Uh, amazing memories. Uh, for me, I can think of one that stands out above all others, and that is Mark Webber's first Grand Prix win in 2009. Just an amazing Grand Prix by him. And, you know, to see any sportsman achieve their dream in the way that we saw Webber do that, I have to say, very emotional for everyone there. He was so pleased. He did a sort of star jump on the podium, I remember. <laughs> he did. And, uh, you know, and to beat Vettel, his teammate on home ground, was... Uh, Proof that Mark was the real deal. You also had Kimi Raikkonen losing his front wheel in the season where they couldn't change tyres, had to run the same set. Uh, he nearly collected Jensen Button at turn one. You had an amazing duel between Alonso and Massa for victory in 2007. If this is a bad circuit, Tom, Formula One is in a great place right now. So look, that's the Nürburgring. Very yeah. excited about going there. Last race in 2013. Now, the one I'm particularly excited about, and it's got nothing to do with the uh, the food and the Chianti, is, oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> is Imola. Such a gorgeous track i mean obviously tinged with a bit of sadness for fans of uh, roland ratzenberger and and senna of course but a wonderful racetrack in a gorgeous part of italy and to see three races in italy in the same season I i'm actually in heaven after the uk motorsport is italian in my opinion and just to be spending so much time there this year is going to be fantastic and imola even with the chicanes now the two chicanes that slow down Tamburello. It is still a wonderful track. Tosa, great corner. Rivazza, brilliant corner at the end of the lap. And um, so much to look forward to. And it's going to be quick. It's going to be quick with these quickest ever Formula One cars. And Antonio Giovinazzi is going to have his place in Formula One history. He's going to be the only Italian driver to race at three Italian venues in the same year. We raised that with him when he was on the podcast earlier in the year. And uh, he's going to have that. He's going to have that no matter what happens in the rest of his career. He will always have 2020 and the man who went racing at three Italian Grand Prix tracks. Now, I'm going to just quickly name two brilliant Imola races, 2005-2006, uh, both involving Fernando Alonso. And uh, actually, doesn't bode well because both of those races <laughs> didn't involve a lot of overtaking. It was a lot of pressure, but it's a narrow track. We've and, got uh, the marketing department on the phone, TC. They're, <laughs> they're not thrilled. They're not thrilled with the races you've picked out. That is the one for me that I'm really excited about. But I feel we have to give a nod as well to Portimao. We do indeed, because it looks like a roller coaster. I've seen some footage of a test, a Red Bull test there in about 2008. And um, yeah, roller coaster, fast, bumpy. I think we're going to get drivers complaining about the bumps, but it's going to be it's going to be spectacular as well. So three fabulous tracks coming onto the calendar. So whilst we're on this subject, TC, uh, if we put you in charge of Formula One, which I'm not entirely sure is the most sensible direction <laughs> to go down, but if we put you in charge of Formula One, where would you be adding? You're allowed to add one track. What are you adding and why? Okay, I'm going to go for Cadwell Park. Now, <laughs> for, people who are, for people who aren't based in the UK, you're probably wondering, where's Cadwell Park? What is Cadwell Park? Well, there might be some it people is... based in the UK wondering where Cadwell Park is. <laughs> Fans of the movie Rush uh, will have seen Cadwell Park because a lot of the Formula Ford footage of uh, James Hunt and Nicky Lauda racing each other was filmed at Cadwell Park, point one. Uh, it's a place where 
Uh, Formula 3 cars raced in the 80s, so the likes of Ayrton Senna, Nelson Piquet all uh, raced there. In fact, Piquet was, of course, in the 70s. But it's a wonderful track. It's really narrow. It's it's Brands Hatch GP circuit on steroids. And, you know, there's a, there's a, a wonderful stretch, a really uh, steep uphill bit called The Mountain, uh, where cars take off. <laughs> cars take off forget about downforce they take off because they're going too fast and uh, it would just be so spectacular and anyone who's been there i'm sure agrees with me so that's cadwell park for me uh aj a 14th race that's currently not on the calendar what's it for you well i'm gonna go for brands hatch because i think just the entire circuit has always been wonderful but with these modern formula one cars i reckon you're looking at close to a one minute lap and that would be something truly special wonderful for fans great memories we're going to be talking about silverstone a lot of course it used to alternate with brands hatch i think it's a great racetrack and i would love to see a modern formula one car go around there even just one of them let alone 20 of the best drivers in the world I remember when Mansell came back to Williams in 1994. Yeah. Um, he did a test session at Brands and 40,000 people turned up just to watch one car, as you say, uh, just do some laps around the Indy circuit, for goodness sake. So, <laughs> yes, I mean, make Paddock Hill Bend one of the greats. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. It's not the mountain. <laughs> but it's a very very good corner <laughs> right that's races 14 uh races 14 and 15 added to the calendar that's done if you've got a shout about what you would like added to the calendar hashtag f1 nation maybe put it in your review as well we will read the best out and return to this uh, the next time that the formula one calendar grows by a few more races which remember it will do later in the year it's ad break time and support for F1 Nation is brought to you by Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped, we offer precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Someone had to write that. Someone wrote that line. Uh, they just launched in the UK and they have the right tools for the job. You can be one of the first to experience their life-changing products. That's why Manscaped have redesigned the electric trimmer. The Manscaped engineering team, I believe it's a team of... 1500 people uh, they've just released the new and improved and it's genuinely called this lawnmower 3.0 in the uk their third generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents uh, when i tell you this is premium the copy says that it's premium the battery the battery will last up to 90 minutes 90 minutes get 20 percent off and free shipping with the code f1 nation at manscaped.com that's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code F1Nation. Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. And now, back to the pod. Next up, let's have a chat with our guest for this week. He ran his eponymous Formula One team for more than 10 years. They won four Grand Prix. They finished third in 1999. He's a bit of a motor mouth. I think you know who I'm talking about. It is, of course, Eddie Jordan. EJ, lovely to have you on the show. We haven't seen you at a racetrack recently. Are you keeping in touch with what's going on in Formula One? Oh, of course. You know, I, I, I greatly missed it when we weren't on. And I think the first number of races, you know, there's been a lot of interesting parts. And in of course, we've now seen the dominance of Mercedes. And, and that's a little bit of a concern for me. Hey, why, why is that a concern? Purely from a, a competitive point of view for Formula yes, One? Yes, oh, absolutely. You adore the way these people have set themselves up. 
quite a number of the ex-Jordan people are, are, are now working there and have been for some time and part of that uh, great, great team spirit that Toto has put in place there. And, you know, James Allison coming in has made a massive difference. And Mercedes have, um, if you like, the magnetism that they have and the power and the control uh, and the success that they've had. Um, naturally, all the best people want to go to, to Mercedes to be with Lewis Hamilton. And my concern is long term. Where does this go? I mean, Mercedes don't want to get like what Michael Schumacher was. You know, people started to turn off a little bit with motorsport because it came too samey and, and too repetitive. And I believe it needs a couple of new teams to be able to take the fight to Mercedes. That's not Mercedes's fault, of course. Um, but nevertheless, I'm thinking purely as a fan. Do you think Hamilton is still getting better? I don't think he's getting faster because I think at his age, you probably don't. But you, get, you know, you get sharper, you're, you're more clever, you've got more race guile, you've got more positioning sense. And it's like uh, an aged footballer. You, uh, you look at a footballer at 20, he's not the same fellow as you have when you're 30. He may be a touch slower, but he has much more sense of where to be, proper placement. He, he reads the game well. He knows what's going to happen. I think this will be a slam dunk for Lewis this year um, because I personally think he's the best driver in the whole of the, the makeup of current Formula One. And arguably, you could say that he's very soon going to be the best driver that's ever been um, through Grand Prix racing its entirety. So, um, you know, it's all there for him to play. I just hope he focuses on the things that matter in terms of what I consider matter, which is um, his Formula One career. Uh, the other stuff that he, he, he's talking about and he's concerned about, fully respect all that. But nevertheless, um, I, I'm really only interested in the um, sporting side and making sure that he becomes the greatest name that uh, motorsport has ever had. All right. Now, EJ, I want put your wheeler dealer Eddie Jordan hat on for a minute. You know, Mr. 15% that you were for so, <laughs> for so oh, long. I don't have a bet for 15 <laughs> If you could manage any two drivers on the current grid, who would it be and why? Well, um, well I've had a huge respect for people like uh, Norris, um, Albon, uh, and there's a number of other people there. Uh, as a personality, I think Carlos Sainz is probably one of the most uh, marketable people that you could ever hope to wish to get. And particularly when he'd be in, in uh, Ferrari, he would be very close to being one of those people. If you're asking me to mention two people, that's going to be a little bit difficult because one of them has to be Lewis Hamilton. A, because he likes a lot of things that I like, which is music and uh, rock and roll and that kind of thing. Um, so that's the first thing. Lewis would be one. And then I'd have to really, really search hard as to where I go with the next one. And um, Maxon himself, as a, as a racing driver, you know, I adore the way he drives and adore the style of him. But if you're talking about an overall concept in terms of the global marketing program, I'd probably go for Carlos Sainz. Very interesting. Uh, Eddie, wanted to ask you about Racing Point. And their huge step forward in performance. Have they done it legally? Is it right on the brink of cheating? What's your view of the approach that Racing Point have taken? Well, first of all, um, they're racing under a um, protest. And um, we know that that Renault have, uh, uh, and I, I saw they protested them that again last week, but the, the, the judge uh, discounted that um, protest because it was in effect the same form as the original protest was. Um, you know, if I was Racing Point, 
I'd be really quite pleased. Um, I'll tell you why, because when people go out of their way to protest you, they obviously are concerned about you. Um, the legal side, whether it is legal or is illegal, is certainly beyond me. And I'm not a steward. I'm certainly not a technical judge. And it will come out and emerge in the fullness of time. I've heard different stories ranging from there was a Mercedes car in the factory of, of, of Racing Point. I find that pretty much uh, uh, unbelievable. Um, and I did make a call as to that respect. And the person who told me categorically that could never, ever have ever happened, uh, I believe and I trust. So that aspect, how much of it is last year's uh, Mercedes car? Um, I don't know. How much of, of Hassel's car was a, a Ferrari? How much is this car? Everybody goes on the grid and they see things that they like. And we did a Jordan. We even had people, when we were going quickly and winning the odd race here and there, we had people like the Adrian Newey. Of course, they're going to come and have a look at the car. And if they like something, they might put their own blend, their own interpretation on how it should be. And I think that is a very legal form of, of understanding the Formula One. And if the car is open uh, to view uh, as it is on the grid, um, then so be it. You can't control that. That is, that is the nature of the beast. And I believe, I'd be really, really surprised if the people in Racing Point, who I know particularly well, I'd be surprised if they actually involve themselves in skullduggery where it was actually a blatant cheat or breaking the rules. I just don't see that. It's not, it's not something in their makeup as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I think this could be a little bit of sour grapes on behalf of some of the teams who feel that they've targeted and they've seen what is the best car in Formula One. Without any question, it's the Mercedes car. And if they've taken dozens and dozens of photographs and made some copy and it turned out to be a really good project, listen, I, for sure the gearbox is differently and the different suspension and, and the monocoque is different. What makes up a copy? I don't know. It's the powers that be will make that decision. Do you think it's good for Formula One? Do you think the approach is good for Formula One? That we've got a team that's decided that the best they can be is a, a copy of of last year's dominant car? Well, first of all, let's be very clear. You said uh, copy, not me. <laughs> and I'm not suggesting that. The facts are, the question is, is everybody pleased that Racing Point is uh, proving the big surprise so far? Uh, for me personally, I'm a little bit biased on this one. Of course I am. I like what Lance Stroll has done. Uh, I've known him a very, very, very long time, right from when Jordan uh, was doing well in places like Canada and uh, he was always very helpful to me so I can see what he's doing to what effectively was the embryo of you know the Jordan going through the different processes of Formula 1 to see where we are now. I actually was really pleased at the last race because I thought Lance did an amazing job. He missed a couple of tricks here and there but you know he, he finished fourth and um, on top of that previous race. I think he's having all the time the really horrific job of trying to justify to other people, not us maybe, but trying to justify why he's in Formula One. Is he there because of his dad? Is he there because of some influence on financial? Listen, in my opinion, there's two types of drivers. You've got the Michael Schumacher and the Senna who were paid. And then you had other drivers who some other people, doesn't matter what way it works, there's always an added bonus of the value that they bring to the category of Formula One, whether, you know, if you look at Sergio Perez, a brilliant driver and has done it remarkably well, but he brings Mexican money. But that's the way the Rubens Barrichello was with me for four or five years. I couldn't have survived without the money he bought from Brazil. You know, so what are we saying here? I just believe that I would love 
Lance to, to do an amazing job because a lot of people want to put him down and put him in a different category. In other words, the category of rich boy, son of, fame. And that is, in my opinion, completely wrong. We have seen time and time again, you know, we only have to look back at Azerbaijan when he finished on the podium. He can do it and he deserves the right to be in Formula One without any question. And one of them, if we believe the rumours that are flying around, might have to make way next year. That's that's quite harsh on either the son of the driver running the team, you'd think that was quite unlikely, or the man who has been with them and scored some outrageously good podiums along the way for the outfit. Well, if you're alluding to the, to the, the Vettel story, um, I don't think that has really run its course yet. Um, Sebastian would be sadly missed in Formula One, you know, four times... Uh, champion, will he ever get back to the days uh, that he achieved with Adrian and, and, and Christian? Uh, who knows? For sure, he's had a couple of uh, horrific years uh, inside Ferrari where both the team, uh, you know, Maurizio Riva Benny did effectively, in my opinion, uh, a good job. And, and you can see that Ferrari has a different mindset. So um, now let's talk about Vettel. Can he rekindle the kind of sparkle? Can he, the fire and the enthusiasm and the charisma that he had? It's going to be difficult at his age. Would I employ him? Probably not. Uh, because I think there's far, far too many young kids coming through that might just squeeze him out at the time. One year ago, very few people would have given much credibility to the fact that Charles Leclerc would have completely destroyed him um, in many respects in his first year. But yet he did. And Charles will go on probably to be number one at Ferrari for a considerable time until he probably gets fed up to the fact that, you know, Mercedes is winning all these races and I'm in the prime of my life. Why should I not be there? So leaving that aside, back to the main question, Vettel. I wouldn't say it's a, it's a, it's a given that Vettel will definitely drive for Racing Point um, or... Aston Martin, and I'm not sure how those two teams are going to converge and how they're going to marry up together, um, where Toto lies in all of this. I think there's a lot of stories to come out to see where we actually are. EJ, he's only 33. Are you telling me, in a similar car, that he could fight toe-to-toe with Lewis Hamilton? At the moment, psychologically, he can't even do that with Charles Leclerc. Can he do it with Lewis? I don't think so. And that would be the way I would look at it in terms of I was the boss of the team. Of course, you'd love him in the car. And I got my best results, if you like. My first ever win was with Damon Hill. And he was, he, he was a bordering on retiring age. And, but yet, he has that cunning guile, just like I think Lewis is coming into that realm. And so, for sure, four times world champion, Vettel is a huge prize for any team. But would you destroy the team? that has Sergio plus income, plus money, and a good rhythm inside the team, and let it see, can it unfold, and get some wins. My absolute dream this year would be that uh, Racing Point could win a race. Right, so we're talking about Vettel, we're talking about Ferrari. Why has it failed, the Vettel-Ferrari relationship? You say Arriva Benny's done a good job. I would beg to differ. Well, you know, you journalists, and I probably categorise myself as one of them, you know, we're all very easy to jump on the bandwagon. We have not seen anything like the greatness of Ferrari. And Ferrari were at their absolutely all-time best when Todd was there with Ross Braun, Rory Byrne. And, and, and for me, they were 
probably at the time, the three best people you could get to run anything. And it, so it just goes to show that what you now have at Mercedes with, with Allison uh, and with Toto and the group that he has gelled together, that's the key. Now you turn back and you see Ferrari. Ferrari in its current mode. Um, Ariba Benny probably had his hands stuck behind his back. By, by that means, he, he, he was restricted in lots of different ways. And uh, even Montezemolo was brilliant in terms of the overlord of what went on. But, you know, is Ferrari going to get back to the, the days that, of the three people that I've just mentioned? Rory Byrne, Ross Braun, and, and Todd, and then throw Michael Schumacher into the mix. That was some effort, you know. That, that, all those wins just didn't happen by accident because the right people were in the right place in the right time. They had the budget to do it, and they had the conviction to make sure that the car aerodynamically and indeed with John Barnard prior to that, you know, was a very, very good package. Vettel has seen that. He's seen that he kind of perhaps feels duped. He hasn't been around to be able to get that team back to the best that could give him the opportunity uh, of winning championships and winning a lot of races. And I suppose that, you know, the frustration came into being, and I suppose you'd have to say that the... Charles Leclerc has added to that frustration because he sees this young kid come in. He's been given exactly the same as he has, in some cases maybe better. He sees he's the darling of Ferrari. He's the future of Ferrari in their mind. And, of course, he's 33, four times world champion. Who wouldn't be upset with something like that? And he's probably saying, listen, enough is enough. I'm out of here. I don't care where I'm going, but I'm not staying here. And I'd say that's his attitude. Okay, well, look, he's coming to Silverstone next weekend, DJ, a place you know probably as well as anyone anyone I know, having had a factory opposite the main gates. What's your early? What's your earliest memory of Silverstone? You know, it was by far the nearest major circuit and Grand Prix to Ireland, and I was fanatical about motorsport, as indeed a group of us. There was a very hardcore group of us in the mid-'70s, you know, David Kennedy, Derek Daly, Tommy Byrne, uh, Michael Rowe, Bernard Devaney, I could go on like that, but it was a great, and all of that came out of Mondello Park. And then, you know, we'd arrange for vans, and maybe 16 of us in the back of a van with wire cutters and cutting through the, the outer perimeter fence of Silverstone <laughs> to make sure we got in free. I mean, come on, we all did that. And, um, and then all of us. take our tickets, and we climbed up under hoarding, and the police wanted to arrest us so we didn't come down, because if we came down, we'd be arrested, so we might as well stay up there. So we saw the Grand Prix from a vantage point, and that's how we live. And they were the memories that I had. The fact is, I couldn't have thought of any other place to go back to when I was actually doing my Formula Ford at the time in 77, 76 or whatever it was. So Silverstone was the natural place. We'd always try and race there in the, the club circuit. Uh, the Grand Prix circuit was sort of a, a, a too, a, too big a, a task to even think about getting around there at speed. But, you know, eventually we did. And um, so uh, I went there then, got signed by Marlborough in the 78, 79. And it was, um, it was the first place I wanted to be based. And I did base myself at Silverstone uh, in one of the old lock-up uh, garages that the, the military and indeed the, the, the Air Force had on the base there at Silverstone. And they were great days, great days until you wanted to go to the loo and then there was no loo inside the lock-up. So you had to borrow Gordy Spice's place next door to go and ask permission to go and do whatever you needed to do. So these were fun days. Um, but, you know, the pub was always full of 
good local people who were racing. And I lived in the village. Uh, God, it was really tough times. I used to cycle to the factory every day because we sacked the general manager of the team, Derek McMahon did, and he asked me would I front the team for a while until he found a new person. And then, of course, he didn't find a new person, so I got the job of having to look after the team but drive at the weekend as well. Marie, I just got married. We'd had a young baby, but Marie was packing boxes in, in Bister and doing all sorts of things, including uh, keeping three lodgers uh, in the house. So there were some incredible memories, and there were some incredibly tough times. But Silverstone is embedded in my soul. The embracing of the local population to the racing fraternity was absolutely quite unbelievable uh, because we were fa made feel so good. And I was an Irish guy and there was certain some troubles in, in the UK with Irish uh, political issues as well. And, but those were never considered. And I only ever got the best from the people at Silverstone. I have the biggest and the fondest memories of my lifetime in motorsport. I've always been at Silverstone. I know you've done a lot of interviews, TC, in your time working in Formula One, but I have yet to come across someone like Eddie Jordan who you could ask him one question and he would speak for the next 20 minutes. Brilliant to hear from him there. Especially nice to hear him speak in such wonderful terms about, about Silverstone and not just the circuit, not just rolling up there once a year, but then his connection with the factory there and his connection to the people in the village. Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant at the end there to to say what the home of British motor racing means to him. The Eddie Jordan story is a great story, AJ. And when you hear him at the end there, just describing what he went through to build up his team, um, it's it's I want to see the film. Forget Rush. We were talking about <laughs> Rush earlier on in the show. I'd like the Eddie Jordan story is, in fact, a brilliant one. Um, and I loved his line too. you know, 15 uh, percent. I wouldn't get out of bed for 15 percent. That is just such a typical EJ comment. Um, Both funny and true. All yeah. <laughs> it is going to be a stunning couple of race weekends coming up at Silverstone and to watch Formula One cars around that track is one of the highlights of my year. And AJ, to think that Bottas's pole last year was, what, nigh on 155 miles an hour. How close to the sacred 160 miles an hour are they going to get <laughs> in qualifying in that Mercedes this coming weekend? I mean, Mercedes, mate, going for their, what is it, eighth consecutive pole position at that track. That it's as if that car that they've been making for the last seven years is just made for Silverstone. And James Allison even alluded to that whilst we were in Hungary last weekend. It's going to be absolutely stunning. Yeah, his confidence is sky high. And you can understand why, given what we've seen in the opening races of the year. The speed of the cars is the thing worth highlighting because it's changed the track from one where the driver's were slightly frustrated they couldn't follow. But because so much of the track is now flat, it's almost returned it to its roots, which was basically the fastest track out there apart from Monza. Yeah, really good point. And uh, for those of you who, who know the corner names at Silverstone, from where they exit Luffield this year, they're going to be flat, or they're not going to touch the brakes at all. Uh, cops will be flat. Then they'll come into Maggots, that jink left, that will be flat. Then Beckett's, they're not even touching the brakes there. 
just lifting off the throttle is enough to get the cars through Beckett's this year. And even Stowe, the next corner at the end of the hangar straight, they're doing nigh on 200 miles an hour at the end of the hangar straight. Stowe isn't even a brake, they reckon, this year either, in quality I'm talking about. So, yeah, as you say... The, the, the speed trace for that is going to be extraordinary. And if, and if you can just hang on in there following another car, you're going to stand a chance of uh, getting someone into Vail, aren't you? AJ, there's a few other people we need to look out for. There's a few other people we need to look out for. I've been looking through some stats because, believe it or not, doing a bit of prep for the weekend. And, um, you know, Lando Norris, what a phenomenal year he's had. And check this out. He's gained at least one position on the last lap of every race this year. Yeah. So when you think it's all done and dusted, look for Lando because he'll be doing something at the end of the race. A last lap Lando does it every single time. <laughs> it was a good move as well. It's a good move. I don't know, I don't know if everyone saw it because it wasn't for the points, but it was a good move around the outside of Esteban Ocon coming through turn 2. Yeah, one of the uh, drivers on the grid who's going to have this strange thing of because the support and knowledge of the British fans is usually so good. It's going to it's going to be strange for the drivers to, to go to their home event without the the sea of people that usually lines the ribbon of tarmac yeah and, and the british fans are so knowledgeable as well aren't they so it's going to feel more like a test session i think for those people actually lucky enough to be at the track i think once the the cars get going and you're going to see the in car and i mean that's the wonderful thing about motor racing isn't it in that of all the sports that we're watching behind closed doors at the minute i feel that when you're watching it on telly it suffers least from the lack of a crowd well, AJ, I've got to hit the road. I've got to head up to Silverstone. So I'm going to do just that. Before I go, uh, message to all you guys listening. Uh, we love you joining us for the show. So please subscribe if you haven't already. Or if you've got time, leave us a review. We read everything that you write about the show and try and learn from your feedback as well. Holtam said it was a superb insight into the life of Formula One. Uh, we also had a lovely message from Dan Jupp, who said he completely agreed with your answer, TC, about the new F1. None of the BS. It's all been about the racing. So there you are. People are even agreeing with you, TC. Amazing. Shock horror. I'm going to drop the mic and leave. And just like that, he was gone. Thanks to Tom. Thanks to Eddie Jordan for his memories of Silverstone and his insights with the current state of Formula One. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. I know for so many of you, it's going to be a weird week not being able to go to Silverstone. I hope you still love the British Grand Prix weekend. We'll be back with you next Tuesday, same place, wherever you get your podcasts, when F1 Nation returns. Listener.